Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome, everybody, to the Genesis Science Fiction Radio Show, a service of the BlackScienceFictionSociety.com website. This is your April 19th, 2019 edition. Um, I, I am your host, William Hayashi, and tonight's special guest is uh, Raymond Carr. And he has a number of uh, cool... I would say not, I wouldn't call him accolades. He, well, he has talent. He has stuff he does. And he said to me off air that he had the face for puppetry. So you can take that how you want. Anyway, Raymond, thank you for coming here. Welcome to the show. Yeah, man. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited about this. Yeah, I, and, and you said, uh, you mentioned that you, you live near Atlanta. I live in, in I, I live in Atlanta. I don't live in Georgia. I live in Atlanta. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And and now, are you a transplant or a returnee or um, you know homegrown? What's the deal there? Um, well, I'm a little bit of. Uh, so I've lived here for 20 years, but uh, so it's hard to say transplant at this time. Uh, but I have uh, originally from Southern California. Uh, Los Angeles County, but I've lived here since I was in my teens. Um, so, uh, yeah, I definitely, you know, and I, I am a big uh, cheerleader of Atlanta. Um, I'm a big Sorry. fan of Atlanta. Yeah. Go ahead. I'm a big cheerleader of Atlanta and a, and a fan of Atlanta. Um, and I, uh, so I've, I've traveled uh, all over the country and uh, have worked uh, in parts of Europe and Iceland and various places. And I uh, always come back to Atlanta. So uh, Man. I'm, a, I'm a big fan. Yeah. Um, and and I, I told you that I, I, my first experience other than the airport, because I've been through the airport a number of times, you know, going to Florida or yeah. going someplace else. Mm-hmm. But um, my first time in Atlanta was, uh, it was, it was both wonderful and torture. The wonderful part was people <laughs> and the event. And the torture part was um, having to wear long pants uh, during the Labor Day weekend. That was, oh, yeah. that just, that was, that was tough. And, oh, and, and you know, I, I got my little shower to shower powder thing that I had in my luggage. And every airport I went to, <laughs> They made me open the luggage, and they had to use some sort, you know, they had to swab it to make sure that I didn't have explosive powder in there. And they said, why didn't you put it in a smaller container? I said, man, I'm going to Hotlanta. I am not going anywhere unless I, I, I know that I can powder up those special places that tend to get very, very warm. So Thinking ahead. It, it was, ahead. Yeah, it was great. I love the people. And, um, you know, I had a great time. Uh, I, hopefully I can get back this year. Anyway, um, you, you do a number of things, but one of the things that Jarvis mentioned that was, you know, of great interest to me is that you're a puppeteer. And mm-hmm. I'm, I'm a little curious, you know, kind of what venue do you do your puppeteering? Because, you know, most of us, when we think about puppeteering, we think about, um, 
I guess Sesame Street would probably be the most visible um, example, mm-hmm. or or if you watch Farscape or something like that, what, you know, a show where the you know they actually have puppet characters who are principal characters for the show. Um, what what about you? I mean, do you do road shows? Do you have you you know? No, it, it, just uh, explain a little bit about it. Go ahead. Yeah, so uh, I am uh, I am actually a Jim Henson trained uh, puppeteer. So I've uh, worked on several Jim Henson productions, um, as well as uh, Nickelodeon Studios um, and the BBC. And so I'm a TV uh, puppeteer and um, and specialized in animatronics and um, creature effects uh, things, as well as what we call Muppet style, which is what you traditionally see on Sesame Street. Um, uh, so yeah, that's my background and that's what I do, um, as one of the things that I do anyway. So, um, in addition to that, um, I am also a filmmaker, um, and my films have been seen, uh, actually at Dragon Con has actually won some awards at Dragon Con. Um, cool. uh, and, uh, and also Comic-Con, uh, we, uh, and also the London Sci-Fi Festival, and, uh, Slamdance Film Festival, uh, as well as a bunch of other places too, uh. So yeah, my my niche is um, when I create my own content. Uh, is my production company is Ninja Puppet Productions. Um, is integrating uh, creature effects and practical effects and puppetry into um, fantasy sci-fi uh, films as well. So very cool. I mean that's. I mean, the the whole idea is fascinating to me. I I looked at the, some of the behind the scenes footage of um, what was that movie that just came out? Oh yeah, the uh, Happy Time Murders. Is that what it was? Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. The, the the dirty one that everybody wanted to disown, yeah. who was in yeah, the industry, it. but everybody who was in the industry <laughs> secretly wanted to be in on it because they got to do all the things that they've always wanted to do, but. <laughs> You know, whatever. Uh, yeah, anyway. no, that uh, those are those are my my good good buddies that made those films. So I mean, it's uh, <laughs> you know, I think it was nominated for a Razzie, so I I can't really speak to <laughs> anything else about that. But uh, and I also can't say too much because I want them to hire me back. So, but uh, yeah, <laughs> we well, uh, actually, that's that's a badge of honor, you know, for a movie like that yeah, to, be, right? to be nominated for a Razzie. I mean, if if that had been nominated for uh, uh, an Oscar, first of all, who would they pick? And second of all, that that <laughs> would that would negate the entire intent of the movie, you know? Right. <laughs> Yeah, no. Uh I mean I, I definitely it's stupid. I love it and um it employed a lot of my friends, so I'm, I can't be mad about it. Uh, <laughs> uh have, yeah, you, we, have you done have you done a motion picture like that or Well, uh not quite like that. They that's a that was a fairly large um uh, production, production for puppetry. Yeah, puppetry okay. I mean nowadays the that's the only back in the day that you'd only see something that, with that many puppets with uh you know the Muppet Show, um, so that kind of thing doesn't really happen very often. But I was working on um, a film that actually is going to be released in theaters. It has like a limited run uh, called Yamasong, which is uh, a Japanese-inspired rod puppet martial arts film. Uh, okay, and it's 
yeah, it's all it's a heavy VFX and puppetry, but all the characters are handcrafted puppets. But it's in this uh, vein of um, <coughs> excuse me, Asian style martial arts uh, with puppetry. So uh, in, in a very fanciful um, way. So like the main character is a turtle, and there's robots, and there's other uh, forest creatures that are all um, fighting with each other but it definitely has like a textural feel to it so like but uh sure. Fillion is in it Malcolm McDowell's in it Whoopi Goldberg does voices in it they're all voices in it um but it's all puppetry man that's pretty cool now I, you know I don't it doesn't really matter how old you are or anything like that but I mean at what age did kind of the puppeteering bug hit you because um you know, I guess just recently on America's Got Talent, we had, uh, what's her name, the ventriloquist. You know, yeah. every now and then you run into somebody where it's a big deal. But, I mean, what was it for you? You know, did, did uh, was it something that you, you got interested in pretty young? Yeah, definitely. I, um, I started off, well, it was twofold. Like, what I've always loved was... Uh, creature effects and monsters and, and, and sci-fi characters that had a very, um, that were real, you know, my, I, I love movies like flight of the navigator and, um, things of that nature that had, you know, uh, gremlins. And, and I was always just utterly fascinated by the behind the scenes. And back then, you know, there weren't a whole lot of behind the scenes footage documentaries that were easily accessible you know, because it was all DVD and VHS stuff. So, but I would, you know, sure. scour trying to find books and, and things of that nature. So that was always my uh, fascination, even though I didn't really know how to do that or w to get into that. Um, and then in addition to that, I uh, worked, my parents are both ministers um, and they, were involved in the church and I, they did, we did puppets just for the kids, you know, trying to get them entertained and what have you. Um, and so I did that for a while uh, and traveling with my parents, they both work in children's ministry. And then I kind of got out of that and um, out in Atlanta, uh, next time you come to Atlanta, you're going to have to check out the center for puppetry arts, um, which is the largest puppetry theater in the country, one of the largest in the world. I think it's the largest in the world, actually. Um, and it's a multi, multi-million dollar facility um, that has, right now it has the largest collection of Jim Henson puppets uh, in the world as well. Um, so there's, sure. a, a, a giant, there's a giant dark crystal exhibit um, and one of the museums is set up to like, like his uh, workshop and have whatever. Uh, and so I, that was my first time, you know, being a young black man in uh, Southern California, you know, grow, growing up in L.A., I didn't know any artists. I didn't know any actors, ironically enough. So like I said, my family was all in ministry. So that was the first time I got involved in, like, theater and performance and, and things with people who were adults that, like, you know, liked, who liked adult things, <laughs> you know. Um, and so uh, I did my first show there when I was 17 for adults. Uh, they have this whole program called um, Experimental Puppetry Theater, which is essentially like an avant-garde um, short play festival. Um, and uh, I did my first piece was called Baby Says Eat Me. Uh, it was about a baby who uh, 
was the cutest baby in the world, and except he became jealous of food because people liked food more than him. And so he would just walk up to everybody and say, eat me, um, until finally he was trying to get people to eat him. Um, and then eventually nobody would eat him, and so he decided to cook himself. So he, it, the piece ended with him throwing himself in the oven. Um, so that gives you a, a sense of the type of... Uh, Man, as they say around uh, here, dark much? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was like, that was my first, that put, kind of put me on the map because, you know, this was an 18 and up show and I was 17. Sure. So I kind of snuck in at the, at the last minute and I, I'd done enough volunteer work there where people kind of knew me and they kind of like let it slide. Um, but that kind of, you know, put me on the map and had people pay attention to me a little bit. Um, and so from there I, uh, got cast in a show called lazy town. I don't know if some of your listeners might remember that it's, uh, from Nick jr. It's this girl with pink hair and this guy in a blue suit that did sports. He was a sports superhero. So he would always jump around, um, and uh, that took me out actually uh, to Iceland. So um, this production was a, a, a Nick Jr. production, but it was a European production company. And the founder okay. and creator of it was was this uh, Icelandic fitness champion. And uh, he basically got a bunch of Americans and millions of dollars and let convinced them to let him do his show uh, out there. And so uh, I got... Uh, brought in and ended up spending a year out there uh, working on this production as a puppeteer. And that was a, a large uh, puppetry uh, show too. So yeah, that, that's kind of where I, the first like TV and, and puppetry film and puppetry uh, experience kind of happened. And, and so, and, you know, excuse me for asking, I don't, I don't mean to be nosy, nosy, but Please. I mean, is this what you no, do, do all time? So I do a couple things full time. I, I always refer to myself as a freelance artist. So sometimes, yes, <laughs> when I'm working on a TV show, uh, I do that. Um, but I also am a, um, like I said, I'm a filmmaker and production designer in Atlanta. So uh, I have okay. my own production company, and um, and I also uh, a production design TV shows and commercials as well. Uh, as all this, and so I and I have a shop uh, in Atlanta too, where we fabricate uh, props and sceneries and puppets, uh, as well that I share with some artists. So, yeah, it's a, it's a little all over the place. Very cool. I mean, it sounds like you have a pretty interesting life. Um, is is there yeah. much that you? I mean, is there anything about you know doing the puppetry part um, that that you are really wanting to do? Is there that magic project, that dream project that you're chasing or anything like that at this point? Or, uh, or are you, I mean, you know how sometimes people think of, I mean, not a baby that says, eat me, but I mean, although that is, <laughs> that, you know, obviously it puts you on the map. But I mean, mm. like who, whoever thought of Farscape, you know, yeah. that, was, that was pretty remarkable. Um, what, what, you know, do you have a project well, like that that you're looking to fulfill? Uh, uh, yes. Well, yes and no. I mean, 
Well, uh, uh, yeah, I'm, 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 we're all goal-oriented people. And, um, you know, Farscape was Brian Henson. Um, yes. And he, uh, you know, he's, he's a, a, an amazing artist and a, a, somebody that's a lot of fun to work with. Um, but he, he definitely inspired uh, a lot of projects that, that I, I like, um, you know, if that they ever, they, I mean, they've been teasing a, a redo, a reboot and all that kind of stuff for a long time. Right. Um, but, okay. Uh, you know, and he, he seems to, you know, he, he's been more thinking about like as a, uh, I mean, it goes back and forth with movie and, and everything like that. So, um, I mean, I would certainly love to be a part of that situation if that were to happen. Um, Jim Henson's Storyteller is another uh, project that they're talking about revamping. Um, they just did the uh, uh, Netflix just did a Dark Crystal series um, that a bunch of my friends worked on, and they shot that in the UK. Um, but really, the uh, one of the really exciting projects that I'm working on that actually is how uh, I got involved with you all, the uh, Jarvis, and uh, was this film that I have coming up called Joywriters. I don't know if he told you anything about this. Um, yeah, so it's basically, um, the premise is that it's uh, a group of three kids from the inner city who accidentally stumble upon an alien spaceship, inadvertently download its consciousness, um, and end up taking its, uh, spaceship on a joyride around Atlanta. Um, so it's, it's kind of like, uh, the ghetto goonies in space. Um, okay. So... (laughs) <laughs> it's inspired by, you know, these 80s sci-fi adventure films like Flight of the Navigator and Last Starfighter and The Explorers and things of that nature. Um, and it's, uh, but it's all from the perspective of young African-American kids, some of whom are underprivileged. And that's kind of the, the genre and the theme of my my work right now is, you know, inspiring young people of co- color to... Uh, as I say, th- think weird, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. you know, as you know, like a, being a black nerd, uh, you know, is not always some, sometimes the biggest uh, beef we get is from our own people at times. Um, so really getting people to like be okay with who you are as a nerd and who you are as a, as a black uh, individual or person of color and just really leaning into it and, and making content that is, showing showcasing uh people young people of color in these um sci-fi adventure stories that we're used to uh seeing as well so sure yeah. now when you were growing up what what kind of entertainment um did you choose for yourself like you know a lot of a lot of the comic book people say well you know spider-man batman you know what have you um uh, it, it, for you you know, you mentioned an affinity for science fiction and and fantasy and and general weirdness. But when you were mm-hmm. coming up, what kinds of things did you choose for your entertainment? You know, TV shows, movies, things like that, even books. Yeah, I think it was. You know, I'm I'm of the generation that uh, that first got introduced to anime. You know, um, mm-hmm. so uh, the big influence on me was uh, Robotech. Um, and okay. just the way, uh, I don't know if, if you remember that one. Uh, oh, yeah. But that was, yeah, yeah. That's like a, a pretty strong, I would say, obsession <laughs> of mine. 
um, particularly the Macross series. Uh, so that one was definitely influential. But then also, like, you know, just working in children's television, uh, I, I certainly got a nose for, you know, I was watching kids' TV longer than I was a kid <laughs> and longer okay. than I was a young kid. You know, as a teenager, I would still watch, you know, um, Nickelodeon shows uh, like Eureka's Castle and, you know, Puzzle Place and um, other shows that had puppetry and, and different kinds of creatures and monsters and stuff. Um, and just, you know, study the aesthetic and study the performances and study um, the techniques uh, more so than anything else. But uh, yeah, th- those, those are some big, you know, influences on me. And then, you know, as I got a little older, uh, you know, shows like Deep Space Nine was uh, really a milestone for me as well. Um, sure. Matter of fact, uh, Penny Johnson Gerald was the uh, played uh, Cisco's girlfriend, and she was the only actress I knew because uh, she went to my parents' church <laughs> for a while, and so that was my my uh, my brush with stardom <laughs> when I was younger, <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. seeing her around. Uh, but yeah, like all that stuff. Like I, I had, um, you know, the Jim Henson uh, books that would just basically had images of the creatures taken apart um, and uh, shows like dinosaurs. If you remember that, that was a NBC sitcom um, from the Jim Henson company. Uh, yeah. And uh, I've been privileged enough to work with a lot of those performers who worked on that uh, show originally too. So that's been really nice. So that's kind of cool because, you know, even in your, what they call your formative years, um, mm-hmm. You know, the the whole visual thing was important to you. The the aspects of the puppetry, the even even the you know, it, obviously it's loosely called special effects when you're using creature effects yeah. or puppets or what have you. And mm-hmm. and so that I mean, for for you to decide to do that is kind of cool at that age because um, first of all, there you know you haven't lost a lot of the fascination that we lose as we we become more jaded. And then to be able to go right into something that that's that's that creative is I think that's pretty cool because you know it's almost self fulfilling in how it feeds on itself if you know what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, once, yeah, once you get into it and you start doing it, you know, you you've got the immediate feedback. You've got the immediate. I don't want to say rush or high because it's not so much that, but. But there's a sense of accomplishment in an area that you're obviously interested in. Yeah, definitely. You know, and I I don't think that when I was that age, I, I knew that that's what I wanted to do. Just because, like I said, I didn't know anybody uh, who did that kind of thing, so it was difficult for me to. It was like you know, saying that you wanted to be an astronaut or something like that. Like you didn't really have any sort of um, grounding as to like realistic possibilities to that uh uh world but uh i definitely was like fascinated and and loved it uh it wasn't until i got older and started you know working and you know it's back then you know i i don't think that i even understood how (laughs) you know people got jobs you know (laughs) outside of uh being going to college and you know applying for stuff uh and now like i 
I haven't had a full, I've, I've never really had a, a full-time job for any extended period of time. Um, I've, I've always been freelance doing my own thing. So even that growing up is was such an abstract concept too. So, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's, yeah, definitely wish fulfillment on, on certain levels. And, and so um, what about your support system, family, friends, how did they, uh, did they, you know, you know what I'm asking. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I, I have been um, incredibly fortunate um, to have two parents that um, rarely do we see eye to eye or do they understand what the hell I'm doing, uh, but they have been um, incredibly supportive throughout and uh, throughout my career, and they've seen that it enabled me to travel and to, you know, have a life and to do things and to have people, you know, saying good things about the work that I do. So they, they, they see sure. that aspect of it and they, they appreciate that and they, they're uh, very supportive on that level. Um, so uh, despite the fact that my, after my mom saw Baby Says Eat Me, um, they had a, uh, a Q&A uh, at the end of the uh, talk back, and uh, yeah. she, she said, uh, "Raymond, if we had known, we would have given you a puppy. Puppy, <laughs> you know we're going to do this. Stuff, we would have gotten you a puppy." <laughs> yeah, my so, mom likes to think of herself as a comedian, but uh, yeah, no, they they have been very supportive, and I and I now I have a community. That's actually uh, one of the reasons why I tout Atlanta as one of you know, as an amazing place to work as a creative is the community. That's why I keep coming back here is because of the community sure. uh, and the people that I have that you are able to uh, to have as a support system. Very cool. Um, so if, if you, I mean, let me ask you this. Do you get out much... Um, like to conventions and things like that where you can meet young kids and maybe talk to them about it and, and you know, do that, that outreach to try to bring in or, or at least inspire our next generation of puppeteers? Yeah, you know, I do a lot of... Uh, so I, I do the, the cons, and actually Dragon Con has a puppetry track. Um, okay. As well. So they have, you know, they had... Um, Carol Spinney, who plays Big Bird, and um, they've had the Henson family out there as well, um, and a bunch of other, Kirk Batchew, who was a big Henson director for a long time, and still is. Um, so they have, you know, the, like most cons, celebrities in the field uh, there. So if any of your listeners interested, they should definitely check out the Dragon Con puppetry track. Um, you know, and I oftentimes my conversations or if you want to call it outreach uh, is to uh, people and and younger people uh, from a just perspective of inspiring them to do, uh, you know, make new content, essentially Um, making content on their own, like uh, the films that we've been doing. Um, So in addition to that, as a production designer and art director, um, I'm often working with young people uh, who need to, uh, who are starting out and who are as, as production assistants or art assistants. And, um, you know, I, I had, coming up, I had a lot of 
really great mentors who took the time out to um, explain to me uh, certain situations, especially on set, you know, where it can be a very rough and tumble and fast-paced um, lifestyle. Uh, I've sure. had some great people that have always taken a, a moment to to explain to me what's going on, and I, I make okay. sure that as much as as much as possible um, to do that to anyone who will ask. And sometimes, if they don't ask, you know, just to make sure that they are. Uh, educated about the process because at the end of the day it does make the community as a whole better too so yeah and and you know i i don't do as much as i used to or maybe it's cyclical for me um Mm -hmm. i was tied up you know writing like four books in a row and and things like that Mm -hmm. but you know one of the things that i have found that is important and and you kind of hinted at it uh maybe even before we got on the air was you know being being a black creative um mm-hmm. there's there's a, a, a kind of a there's a gestalt around that that a lot of people might not realize you know as a writer i would love to encourage more more black authors because um to do so does two things first of all it, it kind of keeps things rolling it opens up people's imaginations and it it actually creates continuity for the next generation of readers. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't be Absolutely. a good writer if, if you're not a good reader. A lot of people don't right. realize that. A lot of people just sit down and go, oh, I'm going to write a book. And mm-hmm. and uh, let me just do a little tiny rant here, and I'll, I'll, I'll get back Please, to normal in a it. second. But here's the deal. I have a lot of people who come to me because I have published and, you know, I've done movies and things like that. And they go, you know, hey, William, can you help me write a, write a book? And I go, okay. Um, and the first thing I want to know is, well, what's it going to be about? And I would say probably 80% of the people who ask for help, they go, well, it's going to be a book about my life. And I mm-hmm. go, okay. And then I ask the question. And I don't ask it nasty or anything. I go, okay, so what is it about your life that you think would be interesting enough to justify doing a book? And inevitably they go, well, you know, I, I – it's been really interesting to me, and I think other people would enjoy it. And and hopefully everybody's life is interesting to them, not in a bad way so much, but but <laughs> that they're engaged in their own. Well, you know what I'm saying, being engaged in their yeah, life, yeah, I, you know, I, I, enjoying what's going on, stuff like that. But then comes evil William, you know, the the guy with the the mustache and you know um, trying to pretend he's the bad Captain Kirk or whatever. And the evil part of me comes out and goes, well, you know, it's kind of interesting that you want to do something like that, that you want to put together something like that, because you're boring the hell out of me already. Um, and that's, <laughs> not cha- that's not charitable. That's not a good thing to say. But, but that's the other thing. You know, there are people who are creative who should do certain things. Like, I, I, I would be willing to guess that you've run into puppeteers or people who thought they were puppeteers who you will never work with, who you don't want to work with, who you don't really respect, and yet they really think they're all that. And that's a tough thing, you know, because mm-hmm. you don't want to I – don't, I don't want to step on anybody. I really don't. Well, okay, maybe, maybe certain presidential supporters, <laughs> but um, – but I really don't want to – I don't want to kill anybody's dream and be that guy. You know, like, uh, you know, we've, yeah. we've got all kinds of characters in TV and movies who have been that guy. Um, and I don't want to be that guy because it's, it's essential 
that we keep the continuity, that we keep going from generation to generation. Um, have mm-hmm. you been in a situation where you have said, oh, this is not good? <laughs> this, is, this is really not good. How do I get out of this? Yeah. You, know, you know, where you didn't really want to work with the people who unfortunately were available for this project. And then how did you yeah, deal with you know, it? It's, it's fascinating. The thing about this industry, and, and, and the creative industry, I should say, you know, and that's filmmaking, sure. theater, what, what have you, is oftentimes people won't tell you when, you, uh, when nobody wants to work with you, you know? Oftentimes you just realize one day or when you screw up real bad, and you did something unforgivable, what have you, you just won't get calls anymore, you know? I always joke that, like, you're retired and you don't even know it um, <laughs> because you're never going to work again. And, and so, I, I, you know, and that's partially just because people don't want to have a conversation with you because they don't feel like they have to. It's not like you're going to see this person, you know, I mean, you see them socially, but it's not like you have to, you have to see them. So my, who do you, why are you the person that's going to tell them hey, man, you really screwed up and nobody wants to work with you. That, that's going out of your way. Not everybody is that confrontational. Sure. So, yes, right. I think that um, – and, and, in fact, I mean, I was just having this conversation. It's, it's almost charitable to confront somebody on a certain level, you know, within reason and, and making sure that you're doing it actually charitably and not just to be a, um, a meanie. Um, right. To say, hey, you, you done messed up. <laughs> you got to – you either rectify the situation or change your attitude. Oftentimes it is an attitude situation where people just don't right. want to work with you because you're just nasty to work with, or you don't have a, a you're not, you're lazy. You don't, you have that sense of entitlement where you want the thing because you see other people have it. You see other people have, well, they made a movie. They did a theater thing. Why can't, you know, um, and that you don't know the work that they've put into it. Um, right. So it, it's a difficult to have these conversations. I think that one of the biggest things an artist can have is a sober assessment of their skill set. To have an, a, a realistic perception of who they are, and you know, this is also life too, who they are, their skill set, where they are in life, and where they want to be, you know? And, mm-hmm. you know, and that doesn't mean that you can't be confident and that doesn't mean that you can't work really hard and that doesn't mean that you can't put on a certain exude a certain level of confidence when you need to but if you walking around thinking that your poop don't stink um or that you think that you are you know better than your work actually is that's also just as detrimental as you being self-deprecating or having no confidence you know there's there's a there's a real important balance um that all artists have to have uh when they're figuring out their 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 stuff i'm not even figuring out just like day to day you know they gotta you gotta have an idea of where you are um appreciate where you've come from and what you've accomplished and acknowledge you know your accomplishments there's no point in false humility but you also have to like be like okay I'm here, but I'm not there. That person's there. My friend is there. My best friend is doing better than me. That doesn't necessarily sure. mean I deserve to, just because we're we're homies, you know. 
Um, yeah. So I got to figure out how to step my game up, you know. So let me ask, um, that's my yeah, Let me ask you this. Yeah, let me ask you this because obviously we don't see the puppeteers, and I do know that there are. I know uh, you know the children's television workshop. No, Sesame, whatever. Mm-hmm. They've got they have some black puppeteers, and every now and mm-hmm. then you'll 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 find out. I have to ask because it's important to it, what's well, important for me to know because I'm I'm curious about it. But is is there a certain amount of pressure on you being black to perform above and beyond or a certain way or to not get taken advantage of or you know what what are the what are the parameters what are the conditions what what's the onus of being a black puppeteer is there one at all you know because apparently i would guess that the the standard is one of performance not necessarily one strictly of ego because a lot of people have ego but you don't see the you don't see very many bad puppeteers you know getting into the tv into the movies and things like that so you know is i i'm a little curious about you know you being a black professional is you know is 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 there anything about being black that that suggests a different way of behaving or or puts a a particular onus on you if you don't mind me asking no please Uh, this is something uh being my career has spanned a lot of different ways and you know i'm now in my uh late 30s so uh I'm not a I'm not a young man, but I'm not necessarily old old just yet. Um, but I have seen the um, spectrum of our society changing from you know the 90s, 80s and 90s to where n- uh, people didn't necessarily care about the black voice, the black experience. They didn't really care about you know representation. Or, and all of these sorts of things. Um, and honestly, children's television has been at the forefront of progressive ideals, I think, um, throughout. You know, children's television, Sesame Street and Mr. Rogers were the first times you would see integration, you know, and see people of color interacting normally with, uh, you know, other races and things of that nature. So children's television has always been very open-minded on a certain level. Um, obviously you mentioned, you know, a lack of ego, you know, we're all still human. We're all still oh, you know, sure. yeah. competitive, uh, competitive on a certain level. And there are certain levels of quality of performances where you may not notice, you know, uh, a perverse, a per, puppeteer's uh, lack of quality. And oftentimes in these niche uh, art forms, you don't notice a bad performance until it's really bad. You know what I mean? Or, uh, you don't, or rather you don't notice a good performance, but you notice a bad performance, I should say. And so there's lots of performers that are in the industry that are like light years ahead, you know, who the people I admire, you probably have never heard of that are just like, just such fantastic, like good dancers, you know, they just choreography and intent and just movement is very, very natural and not that kind of thing. Um, So, Short answer is yes, there is always a, a, a uh, perception based by the vir- on the virtue of the fact that, in general, you are the only one, if not, you are one of the few, if not the only ones. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, 
that kind of thing, as as uh, tokens will often appreciate, is like you don't know how much of that is in your head or how much of that is people actually like saying that. And and it, being tokens, you often want if you feel like because you're the only one, you got to step your game up, or you or maybe you reject that notion entirely and just you know, don't care about it. And, and I've vacillated through that process myself, you know, from job to job where I don't care. And I, um, but at the same time, you know, uh, you as a puppeteer, oftentimes you are still using your voice. And there have been many a times when I was asked because uh, I was a black puppeteer, because they needed, you know, in this rainbow cast of, uh, puppets, they needed a black person's voice, even though, you know, uh, <laughs> over, over, over the radio, I don't necessarily inherently sound in, traditionally uh, what people think to seem to think of as black, you know, but I still do get cast as the black voice in the room. Um, so it, I've always been aware of it. And uh, I've been conscious of it and try and and because I've been token for so many years in my life, I think that I try and uh, strive to represent as best I can and and honor my situation and others that come before and after me. Um, but again, you know, you may be in the room and maybe nobody's thinking about that, <laughs> you know. <laughs> maybe it, you, they just hired you because they liked you or because you're buddies or because you did – maybe you just got hired because you did a good job. <laughs> yeah. As a matter of fact, yeah. Uh, it, it's funny. I got a um, – I don't remember the show Bear in the Big Blue House. Um, uh, your, some of your younger viewers might remember this. It was a Disney Channel show. It was very popular. The giant, I remember. Uh, well, I had yeah, kids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. During that era. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. So the guy who plays that is Noel McNeil. He's a, um, a African American performer. Um, he's in Bear, um, and he's a cat that I've I followed his career coming up. He was in a bunch of other stuff, and I he has a very distinctive voice, and I recognize his voice. And so um, I got cast in my first show working with the Jim Henson Company, which is a show called Splash and Bubbles, and it's uh, on PBS right now. And um, I was living in Atlanta still, and they were going to fly me out to uh, LA to work on to, to work on it. And I was at that point kind of used to being cast as the black former. Um, okay. And I didn't know. Uh, know very well, but we have a bunch of mutual friends. We're Facebook friends, and so I hit him up, and I was like, "Yo, like, uh, this is a really big deal. Uh, I'm very excited about this. Do you have any words of advice as being like a black puppeteer? I feel like they're hiring me for because I sound black and all that kind of stuff. And uh, mm -hmm. you know, he had he he was like, you know, basically." don't worry about it, do your best, all that kind of stuff. Nothing, uh, it, he was very gracious with his time, but it, it wasn't anything like that I didn't already know. And then I come to find out that like, they did, it, I, it was on me because I, they didn't hire me because I was black or anything like that. They just, I guess I just did a performance that they hadn't seen. They'd seen a bunch of people. They auditioned a bunch of people and the characters, uh, 
the character I was playing was kind of like this big dopey character and everybody was doing the big dopey character voice and I came in kind of under and kind of squeaky and kind of a, a different fast talking kind of fun character and that's mm-hmm. why I hired not because my voice sounded black and I didn't find this out you know so it was all over <laughs> so that's like that's one of those things it was like my perception was one thing and who's, who knows, you know, who really knows what's another man's thinking. Um, but that so many of these things you have to, uh, you have to just account for, you know? Well, casting directors, you know, first of all, they, all of them have their own Piccadilly. Well, I guess Piccadilly is the wrong word, but all of them have their, their own internal preferences, prejudices, go to, uh, attitudes, you know, things that they look for, and and you know, a lot of times you'll never know what it was. Um, I yeah, think absolutely. I think for you to believe that you know you just put out superior work is probably not a bad way to go, given your given your your history and your resume. Um, so, um, but you know, I I just I just wondered if color played a part. In, in terms of how you had to, okay, for me, you know, there, there's no, there are no Japanese lesbians trapped <laughs> in a man's body out there writing speculative fiction, okay? So right, I've got that right. niche down. You know, if, if they're going to, <laughs> you know, right. um, and, and I, I do that to try to get, you know, the, the Oprah readers, you know. But anyway, um, <laughs> but, it, but, you know, there are things I'm con- conscious of. You know, I'm conscious of uh, I don't want to come off as a bad person because then sometimes people will attribute it to something that has nothing to do with me being an ass. You know, they'll go, oh, well, you know, he's just, he's from the south side of Chicago and you know how they are. Well, I, I don't yeah. want that to happen either, you know. So, mm-hmm. um, and, and I just wondered, you know, how that suggested your career, you know, what, what part it played. Um, when, when you look for, I mean, do, do jobs come to you now or do you audition? Uh, how, do you, how do you get your continuous work? I mean, outside your production company and things like that. I'm talking about mostly puppeteering. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, um, that's kind of why I started my company. It was because, um, you know, I, I did have uh, a bit of success early on in my career. And I thought that, you know, well, that's it. I made it. I'm going to just keep working steadily. And, you know, that just is not the way life works for most people. Um, and so I started doing my own thing, but in general, um, you know, it's, especially as, as a freelance artist, it's uh word of mouth, you know, I, I'm pretty connected into, um, the creative world and, and I have, um, projects and people that, and, and producers and clients, um, that I, I go to and even the most, you know, actively working puppeteers or builders or what have you, they still, you know, there's only so much work to go around. Um, right. So for the most part, uh, you know, I have uh, a social pres- uh, a social media presence, especially with this film that we're doing now, it's really uh, putting out a lot of content right now. Um, and then I have various, I, I do have an agent um, in LA, but that's kind of a, uh, it's, it's, I do most of the, the, the booking myself just because that's just the way it works. Um, so, um, 
excuse me. Yeah, it's it's mostly just uh, word of mouth and um, connections with other people. And there's a couple of forums uh, that people have created and websites, uh, Facebook groups, things of that nature that uh, there will be job postings on um, from time to time. Uh, so we, we, we have a pretty strong community and, you know, we, we try and the people that in, in my community try and uplift and keep other people informed as well. So, sure. Yeah. And if, if I could, I mean, I don't know if you can tap into this, but I am curious, you know, when you look at, you know, the span of your career, um, what, what do you, you know, what would you characterize as maybe the worst part of what you have to do in terms of, you know, being a puppeteer, you know, produce, you know, doing your own production work, things like that. Um, what, what do you find to be the most tedious or, you know, the, you know what I'm asking? What's, what's the worst part yeah, about yeah. being you and, you know, professionally? <laughs> well, I mean, if you ask my girlfriend, you might get a different uh, answer to that. But, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I I say that I have creative ADD, so I have to have multiple projects going on at the same time. Uh, otherwise, my brain just can't focus very much. So uh, the worst part is just uh, having to, uh, you know, play the game and, and, and uh, pound the pavement and hustle as much as you can. Um, you okay. know, there's a, there's a lot of, um, things that go along with the actual artistry that you have to do to actually do the art, you know, whether that's auditions, whether that's, you know, sending in resumes or reels and or applying for grants and all of these, these tediums, uh, that go along with it. Um, but you know, and, and most of it has to do with just finding the money, you know. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, grant writing is a nightmare. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, so is auditioning um, and that things of that nature. So um, the actual getting to do the job is great. And it's, the that's, you know, that's the the part. That's the rare part is actually getting to do the job. The the majority of the part is you know getting the jobs and and finding the work and creating the work. Um, you know, Being I, I keep joking to my yeah. I keep joking to my producer because we're in right now we're in financing um, for my film and we're doing a, a crowdfunding thing. Um, and uh, I keep joking that like. Right, we're in the middle of doing this really hard thing just so we can jump into doing this other really hard thing, which is making the movie, <laughs> you know? So uh, it's all, you know, a pain in the ass, but uh, I, I love it and I, I keep doing it. So I guess I guess I, I like it enough. You know, you mentioned that you're, you're, you're trying to get the funding for a project that you have now. Uh, I'm a little mm-hmm. curious, you know, you, you don't sound like somebody who doesn't plan well. Where, I mean, if you can imagine it. No, I'm serious. I mean, where do you think you're going to be that's, maybe that's five or ten years from now? 
Well, I mean, there there are people who don't have the sense of a house plant, all right? And I've I've been doing this for a long, long time. You know, just this show alone is over six years. I started in radio in the bicentennial year. Okay, you you weren't you weren't even excuse me, ladies and gentlemen. I love this this insult. You weren't even sperm yet. Okay, so um, but but. But you can tell, you know, it's not hard to tell if somebody's serious about their craft, they're serious about their work, and they have good work. I don't want to call it ethics, but let's just call it habits. Because if you're an entrepreneur, you can't be lazy. If you're an entrepreneur, you can't take things for granted, like getting new work. Um, All of that is a process that we all learn based upon our industry. So, I mean, like, you know, as you sit here now, you've got a project that you're trying to fund, you know, where do you think you're going to be five years from now? Uh, for all I know, working on this same project. No, um, <laughs> I joke, but uh, I, so my, the, the big dream, I guess, or the goal is um, to basically continue and to grow in this uh, uh thing that I'm doing and, and, and having, uh, having my, my fingertips on a lot of different projects. So basically I, I, my goal is to have, um, the thing that I'm doing just expanded, uh, with more people and more projects, because, uh, as I said, I have various projects that are on some are theater based, some are film based. Uh, I'm also developing television shows right now and writing a children's book and all these sorts of things. So like, I want to be able to have uh, people that are working with me in partnerships that are enabling me to take on more um, projects. You know, the the one of the big trends right now um, in Hollywood, but also just creatively throughout, is you have people who are spearheading these production companies that you know are buying up IP, buying up books, buying up comic books just to get the rights so that they can then develop them. And then, uh, you know, pitch them, go out and pitch them to different uh, production companies. So I've done that on a small scale, but I'd love to just continue to build on that um, and have people who are bringing me, you know, books and and, and uh, music and, and basic concept and be like, this is something that's hot. Nobody's seen this before. Let's buy the rights and let's contact the artists or let's buy the rights and do it our own way, you know, um, just so we can just get that out there. So my goal is to just have multiple pinning, spinning plates that are, um, you know, creating and, and, uh, you know, making revenue, but also just making content. That's at the end of the day, like I, the reason why I started making content was because I didn't feel like I, I like, I like weird things. And there weren't enough weird things for me to consume. So I figured I should just go ahead and make my own weird things. Uh, and so my ultimate goal is to just make as many weird things as possible so that somebody like me can just have a, a, a library of their own weird things to like in the future, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. For those who tuned in a little bit late, we're talking to Raymond Carr. Um, producer, puppeteer, creative, um, and uh, uh, tell us where we can take a look at your online presence. 
you can check out my website, ninjapuppetproductions.com. Um, and uh-huh. then you can also find out about um, my film at uh, joywritersmovie.com. Um, and you can get a little bit more of the insight into the, sh- the, the process. So, um, like I said, one of the cool things about this process is that for the, we made a, a promo teaser. We're working with uh, Seed and Spark, which is a great uh, uh, resource for filmmakers and uh, specifically filmmakers for uh, raising funds. And uh, so I knew I wanted to put together a real kick-ass promo video, so I actually uh, built my own spaceship in my shop. So um, you can go online and check out the spaceship I built that the kids will be in. Uh, it's, a, it's a prototype for the spaceship. We'll build a much bigger one when we go into production. Um, but it's all black. Uh, it has a very like organic feel to it. Uh, it's foam and uh, silicone. So it has like a, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. a, a skin-like uh, texture to it with a series of lights um, and uh, almost metal plates. The idea is like the alien has this uh, technology where it's uh, uh, this organic material and he has like metal plates that he's like bolted in to keep the material from like oozing out. So it's, it's very hybrid um, <laughs> okay. technology. Yeah. So it, it looks fun. It looks weird. Um, I'm also like designed it so that it uh, reflects well off of, um, you know, dark skin tones, you know, thinking in that vein because the uh, cast is uh, mostly African-American. Um, so um, uh, I'm definitely thinking three steps ahead on this project. So yeah, sure. And and the stories that you you know self produce, the stories that you're really interested in, are are the are the characters mostly black? Do they have black situations? Um, or or is it is it kind of situational merely because you're black and you you know you're working with blacks? Um, you know, I, I kind of am talking about your creative process, the part mm-hmm. where you, you create your stories and, you know, you kind of mm-hmm. think of the stories that you want to tell. You know, it's evolved over the years. Um, I think a lot of people uh, of color, when they work in a predominantly white industry, they it, sometimes you want to stand out and sometimes you want to blend in. Sometimes you just want to be like, I don't want to be known as the best black X. I just want to be known as the best X. Um, Or sometimes you kind of shy away from that because you don't want to necessarily be pigeonholed as being a black artist. You know what I mean? Um, And so I went through that phase, I think, initially in my my, uh, career where I wasn't necessarily shunning it, but I definitely wasn't leaning into it. Um, And so a lot of my content was just, you know, the people around me and, and, uh, you know, very much so, um, it's just the world that I saw it as it, as it was. And also like, I often work in metaphor in my content. Um, Mm -hmm. and it doesn't necessarily really hit the nail on the head as far as, um, social, uh, issues, that are current. They're generally more universal metaphors uh, in the pieces that I worked traditionally. Uh, but yeah. in the past couple of years, uh, partially, and also it's like, I hate to say it, but like there wasn't really an audience. At least it didn't feel like there was an audience for um, being black and weird. You know, there wasn't the, the people, the people in my culture didn't necessarily weren't gravitating towards it. And white culture 
didn't even know what to do with me. And so I did, um, in the early parts of my career, kind of blend in with white culture a little bit more. Um, Mm -hmm. And now, uh, as I have become older and just a little more comfortable in my own skin and comfortable with my own voice, you know, I... um, I have found my voice and I have found the, the aesthetic and, and knowing that what, who I am leaning into who I am. Um, That being said, like, I don't, um, most of my characters are female, honestly. I I rarely work with um, main characters that are male. Um, And part of that is just because uh, I've just, I, I think that, female protagonists are generally more interesting to me. Um, mm-hmm. There's a little more complex complexity in the nuances uh, that you can get emotional ranges, as well as, you know, oftentimes I put my characters in peril, <laughs> whether it be horror, suspense, or what have you. And there's a certain level of vulnerability that we project onto for female protagonists, you know, the Ripley's of, from Alien, you know, they, they are Ripley versus The Rock, you know what I mean? Um, uh, I, I'm always going to ask Ripley. Um, so, uh, my, Freud, you know, Freud would have a field day with you, you know, <laughs> well, I mean, you know, it it just, it uh, here's what occurred to me. You know, you're, you're a guy, you work with puppets and you like sticking uh-huh. your hand into female puppets more so than male puppets, <laughs> blah, 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 blah. It wasn't that uh, complex a jump for me to I, make I, mentally. Wow. Yeah, no, but that, that, but that could uh, be because of my sick mind, not yours. <laughs> Ironic. Okay, so here's the the irony is that my characters are when I say female, I mostly my pieces that have female in them are they're the female is human and the rest of the the, the, the male characters are puppets. Um, so I'm. It's funny because I don't, I rarely perform with female puppets uh, myself. Uh, so okay. Maybe that's, that's even, that's even deeper that you can, uh, you can partake in that. So, uh, <laughs> oh, so maybe, maybe, uh, maybe Freud was right. Never mind. Uh, exactly. <laughs> but, but, but you know what, that's kind of cool though, because you know, a lot of, uh, there, a lot of men don't work well with, with female characters because um, they, they don't tap in well. Or, or you know, their their portrayal is superficial, and mm-hmm. I forget what the name of that test is where you apply the parameters uh, to a female. Yeah, that yeah Bechdel. that one. Yeah, I, mm-hmm. yeah, and and so you know, this is this is. I mean, I see this as a good thing. I uh, I will brag about one thing. Um, in all of my books and stories, um, I I have been women have. Um, complimented me on the fact that my women characters actually sound like women, and that's I'm not great, sure yeah. why that is, but yeah, but that's a mm-hmm. that's a good thing because, um, you know, traditionally when you look at traditional Hollywood, when you look at traditional television, um, you know, white male characters dominated for for so long, for years and years and years. Mm-hmm. You know, and when you when you had a, a you know a great well you know you've got uh, who was it uh, Amos and Andy you know white guys dressing mm-hmm. like you got uh, I'm not going to mention the guy who has his own movie studio who always wears a, a dress 
Um, <laughs> yeah. Because the dude, the dude has found a niche and has made an enormous mm-hmm. amount of money because he's giving the public what they want. Um, mm-hmm. And so, and so, yeah. I mean, that's that's kind of cool that you tapped into that. And um, you know, what what kind of reviews, what kind of opinions do you get of your your homegrown stories and your your the characters you've created? Um, what kind of reception are you getting for your your portrayals and your stories and your arcs and your characters? Yeah, I mean, I think that for the most part, um, my especially in going on staying on the vein of like writing for women, I, I I feel like I have had a pretty successful run as far as um, portraying women as you know being people and that's the irony is like people who tout us for writing women well um the trick is just write them as people uh <laughs> you know it's not that hard you like you don't have to ex- think super extra hard and like okay what would a woman say you just write them as yeah, but- people who reacting to human situations um yeah but that's you that's not everybody <laughs> Okay, and, I guess, and you know and it's me, true. I guess. Let me give you the bad example. Okay, there. What was that movie with Jack Nicholson? As good as it gets, uh-huh. where he was a writer, a, a really bad-tempered writer. It had. Uh, uh, I can't remember who the yeah. other. Oh, and yeah, and oh, uh, uh, Cuba Helen Cuba Hunt, Gooding Jr. was in there. Uh-huh. And so somebody says, "How do you write your women characters so well?" And his reply, which I have to admit was a great line. I'm I'm not endorsing it, but the line was, I write everything that is a man, and then I take away reason and accountability. Oh, my God. I mean, first of all, the person who wrote that line, that it's a brilliant line. It's not true. But to have Jack Nicholson say that, could anybody else have said that any better than him? Probably not. Yeah, of course. Right, yeah, yeah. So, so yeah. you know, you sit there, you go, oh, it's not that hard. I just do what I think women, you know, what, what would they do in this situation? But you know what? It, it is that hard. Otherwise, they wouldn't have the Bechtel test. Otherwise, they wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't have, you wouldn't have the accolades that the Wonder Woman movie received. And not so much, obviously, the money is what yeah. got it a lot of attention, okay? Because obviously if you don't make money, people go, well, you know, it's just, it was a, a, a movie about women and, you know, that ain't going to sell. But the mm-hmm. fact of the matter is it, <clears throat> it sparked not a revolution, but it sparked a conversation and, and a cultural phenomenon that, that we hadn't seen for, a, I don't know if ever, I mean, I can't think of, you know, like you mentioned, yeah. aliens. Alien. You know, uh-huh. you have Ripley as as a, uh, you know, a, a, an actual hero. Um, but when when uh, there was a a meme, I don't know if it was recorded or just written. I think it was just written. But a kindergarten teacher um, posted that one day she walked up on on a a, a, a gathering of girls, you know, first grade girls. And they were sitting there, and they were handing out. Each one of them was getting certain superpowers so that they didn't overlap. After seeing Wonder Woman, you know <laughs> that that's that's a conversation. When you think about that conversation for five and six year olds, that, that's remarkable. 
or or the uh, the the woman who filmed I guess it was a seven or eight year old girl who w- showed up in front of the table where Gal Gadot was uh, mm-hmm. signing autographs and she was just so emotionally overwhelmed she just started crying. You know when you have um, a cultural phenomenon like that, what it does it, it does two things. First of all, it's laudable, but second of all, it does point out the dearth. Of, of that sort of writing, that level of writing, those kinds of characters, the portrayals. Um, and, and so that's, you know, we have the same thing with Black Panther. Um, yeah. You know, uh, a, a lot of people miss the point of why Black Panther was so popular, especially with young kids, white, black, Asian, what have you. And I, I haven't seen it said anywhere else, but the thing that I think that everybody tapped into, including kids, was the nobility of all the characters. You know, mm-hmm. even Killmonger, he played by the rules. He did everything mm-hmm. by the rules. Yes, he was, he was, he had issues. <laughs> I guess that's a nice way of putting yeah. it. But, right, but right. even when he fought, he fought by the rules. When he died, he died by his own code, you know, I, I can't mm-hmm. live the rest of my life locked up in a box, you know, I'd rather die. And so I think that when you put together protagonists in in unaccustomed roles that do things that resonate with other people, that's always going to be something laudable. And And the fact that people make such a big damn deal of it shows how little of it there's been, okay? No, um, I, you know, one yeah. of the things... I like I like to bring up I'll just do this and I'll get out of your way. But you yeah. know, and, and the popularity of things that are counter mainstream culture cannot be denied, especially when you start out with Luke Cage having broken Netflix for three days. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, go ahead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, uh I, I think you're right. I mean it, there's there's two parts to this. You're right that, you know, obviously it is hard for some people because it hasn't happened. But in addition, but I think that thing that is hard for them is something that is self-inflicted. Uh, my point is that it is easy when you start doing it. What, what the, the hurdle is that we other each, each other so much. We other women. We other minorities. We other people that we're not like. And so when you yes. think of other people as other, then it's difficult. But if you accept people as, or, or you think of people in, in your writing process as being more of the same. I have white friends uh, who are filmmakers and writers and what have you, who are, who are woke as hell, who are you know, very um, aware of the culture and who are trying to do the right thing. And then they get into their own heads because they wanna, they wanna incorporate black characters into their pieces but they think, okay, well, maybe I shouldn't because I don't have that voice. I don't have that, that, that uh, you know. Uh, I don't that, drive in I'm that lane. That, I don't drive in that exactly. lane. Exactly. And, and so, so I should stick in my, in my lane, stick in my lane and all that kind of stuff. And where I'm, and I know, like, there's a, a, a friend of mine um, who will not be listening to this. I hopefully won't be listening to this so I can say it. But he had a chance to um, cast a very... A uh, popular brown actor uh, right now. Who uh, this was years ago, and he didn't do it because he didn't want to portray this minority in 
not even a negative situation. It wasn't necessarily a, a negative situation. It was just that this was the only character in the movie and this character was going to making going to be making good and bad choices. And okay. um, and he didn't he ended up casting um, a white guy because he was afraid of putting this person of color in a situation where they would be potentially seen as oh well they're uh, a person of color that's why yeah, you know, yeah. it wasn't even stereotypical situations. It was like a very outlandish situation, but, you know, there was murder, there was death, there was action, there was all these sorts of things, there was amoral characters, and uh, he didn't was like, okay, well, I don't want to be perceived as, you know, being racist by doing this, and therefore I'm, you know, excluding this person of color who was a better choice because I don't want to do this thing. And I understood what he was saying. I understood the, the conflict in his head, and I, and I respected it. Um, and he, I don't know if he regrets it, but he understands that, you know, he, that necessarily was, he, he was in his rights to cast that person. Because like I said, it was, it, was a good, it was a good role. It wasn't, you know, him, this person of color talking jive or anything. It was just a complex sure. character, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah, um, yeah. And so, and then that's, and that's that othering that I'm talking about. If he had just embraced the fact that this person was just as normal, like the white guy that he uh, ended up casting, then that wouldn't have been an issue. And, you know, maybe he would have gotten some flack. Maybe he would have, uh, there would have been some people that given him side eye, but at the end of the day, it would have been a great role for a person of color, a complex role that you don't see a person of color in um, very often. And that didn't happen. And uh, yeah, so I think it's, it's that other ring that people get hung up on. And that's why they think that they have to, they, ha- they feel like they have to write women in a specific way. They feel, feel like they have to write people of color because, you know, as much as we want to see, you know, people of color being in positions to write and create content. The reality is that white men are still the majority content creators, and that's probably going to stay mm-hmm. the same way for, for some time now. And that's, that's just what it is. So if we only wait for uh, people of color to write for people of color, then we're never going to have, um, we're never going to see more people of color on TV because white men are always going to be, or the foreseeable future be the majority content creators. So I think people just need to like get over it and just write people like people, you know? Yeah, but you know, you're, you're right. If that would, that would be the ideal situation in a perfect world. Um, but, but look at how many, how many white folks lost their mind when Jordan Peele says, you know, I'm not going to cast, you know, uh, white principal characters in my, in my movies because I've already seen that movie a million times. And mm-hmm. and people people collectively lost their minds because <laughs> oh you're being you're being racist and first of all I really resent the fact that people are so stupid as to as to believe that there's such a thing as reverse racism and there is not not mm-hmm. in this country you know mm-hmm. the the component to racism that people always forget is control okay mm-hmm. you know I can't I can't be racist because there ain't no Japanese out there who control the economy who control laws mm-hmm. who control anything you know I, I can mm-hmm. be prejudiced I can be bigoted mm-hmm. absolutely as a matter of fact I am in some ways I am 
I'm worse than Fred Sanford, you know, but, and, you know, and, and I, I freely admit to people that I am a rocking chair and a porch away from being that guy. But having said that, um, you know, telling, telling stories is an individual personal thing. And the fact that, you know, people will automatically get bent out of shape. Like, why should Jordan Peele be any less biased about his casting than Woody Allen? I've never seen a black person in a Woody Allen movie. Have you? Except maybe a cab driver or something like that. No, not even a cab driver. I can't. I honestly, I've never seen a black person in a Woody Allen movie. All right. Mm -hmm. How many black people were in Friends? Right, exactly. You know, you know, and, and, and these white folks, you know, it's a little disingenuous to be upset because one person says, well, you know, I don't want to go that way. You know, and I think, I think Spike Lee caught a little of that, and, you know, he's had to be careful because, you know, uh, making movies is a very, very risky business, and getting money to do so is tough. Yeah. And, you know, you... you you have to be risk averse if you're going to play in that industry, and we found that out to well to, to me it was a little bit of dismay at because of the timing. But when George Lucas did Red Tails, um, mm-hmm. he he had to self finance. He couldn't he couldn't find yeah. anyone in Hollywood yeah. to back that movie because there were only like mm-hmm. three white guys in it, four you know mm-hmm. whatever, and and so. You look at that even after, well, no, I think the studies came out after Red Tails, but there were two consecutive studies that were done that showed movies with diverse casts and non-white characters actually made more money than Mm -hmm. monochromatic films. And so, you know, I have to say that even though it's a financial decision these days to have a, a more cosmopolitan cast, I will take that until somebody just does it because this is the way American society looks. America, you know, America's uh, population looks. Because whatever the motivation, at least it's getting certain people work where they wouldn't have worked otherwise. So, um, yeah, and and then for you, you know, you mentioned you're you're telling the stories that you want to tell and you've got, you know, uh, your protagonists are women. I'm I'm going to guess that for the most part they're women of color, black women. Is that a good uh, guess? You know, it's it's, uh, it's I'm just varied, I'm wondering. Uh, it's it's varied honestly because um, part of it is um, so uh, when I create content, I have a very uh, you know when you, when you cast when you make these shows uh you have a choice of either casting your net wide or working with the people that uh are tight within your circle and have you so uh i I have in my earlier career i didn't cast my net very wide and they were films that were weird and projects that were weird so they were mostly uh white people wearing them just because you know like like I said, you know, this, it, being weird and, and black is, is a rarity, uh, was a rarity um, coming up. So uh, you, you'll start to see a lot of um, progression in my in my work. In my earlier eight, uh, days, there were, you know, uh, mostly white women, white people. And then 
you know, with, you know, a handful of African-American people that I, I knew that were interested in, you know, being weird and, and making sci-fi and making uh, all these types of things. And then uh, I made a conscious choice to uh, diversify my work and actually cast my net even wider. And that was, it was a great choice because um, I made a film uh, called Bait, um, and it stars uh, a Korean-American stuntman. And, uh, and so most of the, the protagonist is about an Asian family, and it's a, mm-hmm. a monster action movie, and it's about this guy um, who his wife has been kidnapped by uh, a monster-worshipping cult. And um, he and his son, his 10-year-old son, conspire together to try and rescue his wife. And you, uh, they decide that the best way to do that is to use his young boy as bait for this cult to capture. And so he basically um, puts a tracking beacon into his son and then allows his son to go off on his own and get kidnapped. And then he goes in uh, tracks him and goes on a rampage trying to fight these monsters and these cultists. And, um, you know, it's this thing where I, I cast, uh, his name is Dante Ha, and he's, uh, like I said, a Korean-American uh, stuntman. He's a professional stuntman. He's worked on all the um, Marvel films, and he's an amazing artist. Um, and I was like, okay, this is the guy that's going to, like, step my game up. He's going to bring in a whole new host of people that are going to uh, make this movie look great. And he did. He like, I'm also like, he has a thick accent. um, And he, so I I made it all nonverbal. So there's no dialogue in it. Um, And uh, he brought in all of his stunt friends too. Um, So there's huge fight scenes. And I did some creature effects stuff with puppets and, um, miniatures to make them bigger and compositing different things of that nature. Um, and it's one of the, my favorite things I've done. We actually played at Dragon Con and some other uh, London sci-fi festival and some other festivals as well. Um, so yeah, I, I think that in my earlier career, I basically cast based on whoever was around me. And then as I got older, I made, I definitely, made more of an effort to uh, include uh, people of color in my, um, my roles to the point now where, I mean, I definitely, I can definitely say that like as a Jordan Pill, I'm not going to be casting white guys in uh, as a lead, uh, probably mm-hmm. won't be casting um, many white females as leads in my uh, films, at least, you know, anything that I do that's notable. Uh, for the foreseeable future. Um, and yeah, that's kind of where I am right now. You know, in, the, in addition to that, I do a lot of, sometimes just as artist friends, we, we make experimental films and just exercises and just shooting a scene here and there. So I'll do that just, you know, based on who's available, just as a, an exercise that not many people are going to see. Um, but if anything, I'm, if I'm putting any effort into something that's going to uh, I'm going to spend money on that. It's going to be a, a calling card or any kind of, it's going to go on my reel. Uh, I'm definitely in the mindset of making the cast as uh, diverse and black as possible. I, you know, I don't, I don't see any problem. You know, I happen to write, well, 
my writing was was sort of a protest thing, but it was it. You know, I don't know. Do you, do you know anything about my Dark Side trilogy? And I'm not trying uh, to tell it or anything. So <laughs> no, no, please send it. It's fine. I, I read the little as a teaser about it, but yeah. You go ahead. Yeah, you know, and, but basically, it was it was a pro, it was a protest, right? Because, you know, middle class black folks did, don't don't exist in America's lexicon, you know, mm-hmm. or, or upper middle class black folks, or and you know biracial folks. I mean, you know, other than you know, and I was by you know, President Obama and Tiger Woods, they are biracials come lately compared to me, mm-hmm. um, both yeah, younger sure. than I am, and. And and for my parents to get together in the mid '50s was it was pretty remarkable. You know, you had a lot. You had black soldiers coming back from, you know, the Far East, bringing maybe Japanese wives and things like that. But not very many Japanese guys who married black women. You know, and they met, believe it or not, in in, in college in uh, in uh, Madison, Wisconsin. Yeah, I, I got I got nothing, man. Ain't nothing normal about none of us. But but the thing is, you know, when I when I started writing the story, I had I wanted to write about people I grew up with. You know, the, the people in my classrooms, my contemporaries, the people who lived on my block or across the street or whatever. And and you know, those black folks didn't exist. You know, we we have all the cliches about Asians. You know, as a matter of fact, one of my my racist jokes that I'm going to tell the first time I get interviewed, either by, you know on the Daily Show or whatever, if I ever get to that point, you know, my joke is going to be, you know, I'm going to have them ask me, well, William, you know, you're half black, half Japanese. What made you decide to make these uh, these black folks on the moon black? And my answer is going to be, well, which is the better story? If the guys who messed up the curve in all your high school and college classes built a spaceship and went to the moon, or if the basketball team did it. You know, I, I don't have any. I don't have any problem playing into that stuff because to me, it's all a big joke. But I, I, I'm very serious about wanting to depict people the way people are. Kind of like you. You know, you're saying, well, I, I want, I want women who are women, and they are like this because there are women like this in reality. Not, yeah. oh, I'm just going to pick these women just because I have a bone to pick or anything like that. So, you know, mm-hmm. it, yes, I, I, I do understand where you're coming from. And I'm, I'm glad to hear it. And, and it'll be interesting to see more and more, you know, the kinds of things that you manage to produce because it, it's, it's coming from an interesting perspective. Now, you grow, grew up in Southern California. Is that what you said? Mm-hmm. Yes, it is. Yeah. What what part? So I was uh, born in uh, Azusa, which is out in the valley, and then um, the Rialto area, and then. But my formative years were in uh, Redondo Beach. Uh, and, so and what's that like south, racially? South I'm Bay. just curious. So uh, it's very different now um, than it was then. Um, so where I was born, I mean. It was mostly white, uh, and that's more like kind of farm country, or, orange groves, you know, out by Disneyland, um, sure. that area, if you've ever been in that uh, that area. Um, so, uh, but then I, and then, you know, my, my area in Redondo Beach was definitely, it's a beach town, white, um, mostly white, uh, Asian. It's uh, a lot of Asian uh, folks, my best friend's. 
in high school were um, biracial, Japanese and white. Um, mm-hmm. And so in contrast, though, like my uh, extended family, uh, I, I also lived in Inglewood for a number of years, too, uh, which I, people know a lot about that area. But my uh, extended family are, are from the uh, Watts area. Um, so we, we got around quite a bit. Uh, but I, you know, it was mostly, you know, I went to church and it was black folks and I went to school and it was white folks. Um, so, uh, there was a racial duality. I don't pretend to say that, you know, I can, uh, completely empathize with a biracial, experience, but there was a racial duality in my upbringing just because, you know, you weren't black enough and you weren't white enough uh, Mm -hmm, in these mm -hmm. situations. Um, And so finding my own voice and finding my own uh, place that I fit in definitely took some time. And then I moved to Atlanta where, you know, there there were no Asians, uh, (laughs) no Latinos, uh, well, there are now, but uh, back when I moved here in the um, late 90s, early 2000s, uh, it was just black and white. And growing up on the West Coast, you know, there is definitely a racial component, racial dynamic, but it's not the way it is in the South, you know. In the South, there are, you know, obviously generations of just intense hotbeds of racial trauma uh, yeah. that exist uh, that you, whether or not, you talk about it or experience it, it's just, it's just there, you know, there's Confederate memorials and you know, the ML King center. And like, Oh, that's where so-and-so got, here's a, a little plaque by this, uh, a park. And this is the monument sign where the Confederate soldiers came in and lynched a bunch of people and everything. It's like, okay, let's play ball. Um, <laughs> you know, so there's always this underlining, uh, thing that is in the South, um, and even if, you know, in, in Atlanta, and that's why I joke that I'm from Atlanta, not Georgia. Um, right. Because Atlanta, Atlanta is a very progressive city. It's a place that I love and it's a, you know, uh, you know, obviously there's racism everywhere. Um, uh, but you look at the map, I mean, it's a sea, it's a island of blue and a sea of red. Um, yeah. So, uh, there was definitely a cultural shock for me coming from uh, California to Georgia on that level. I saw a funny meme about Atlanta, and it showed cars bumper to bumper, and um, you know, it, it clearly they were on an Atlanta expressway and said, you know, something about if you live there or you know, right there, you're you're an hour away from Atlanta. Atlanta is an hour away from Atlanta. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, and, and, you know, and I was lucky when I, when I went to Dragon Con, I, I, I got to stay with a friend, uh, friend's parents, kind of, uh, I think they were west of the city. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I was, I, I was so short on sleep. But you know, I I managed to take the um, the train, and that was that was pretty good. But the you know when we were driving, you know it is kind of a weird place to watch people drive because I'm used to 
Chicago Expressway driving. And everybody knows the rules. And, and we do punish people who don't follow the rules. We don't exactly mm-hmm. run them off the road, but there's a lot of horn going on. Um, the one thing I, I do enjoy about Atlanta, and I, I, I have to admit that there's a, I sit here with secret glee, sometimes not so secret, is when you get that half inch of snow and then the whole town gets shut down for a week. That, <laughs> that cracks me. But, but it makes perfect sense because when you have yeah. as little snow as you have there, you're not going to spend millions and millions and millions of dollars on salt and, and you know, plows yeah. and things like that. So I do get that. Um, yeah. But it's, you know, I, I admit that there's a little snarkiness that I, I experience every time you guys get shut down because of some snow. Um, <laughs> do you see yourself probably staying there for a while? Uh, is that a good kind of base for you to work from? Yeah, I, um, I'm i not planning on leaving anytime soon. Um, you know, I, I, I think that this place is uh, great for... Um, what I, I I always say is that one of the best um, luxuries that we can have in society is options, and that is what this city gives. And then I say luxuries because not everybody has options. You know, not every everybody um, uh, has options to pursue their dreams or to even you know have financial freedom on any sort of level. So it is a luxury. Um, so. Uh, here you can be a creative, be weird, and not have to worry about uh, breaking the bank and mortgaging your house just to do like a, a weird uh, theater show or a sci-fi film or what have you. You have you can still, um, you know, uh, make mistakes creatively and not have to uh, worry about if your kids are going to be able to afford college. You know what I mean? So there's uh, yeah. for the moment it's it's a city that is expensive but it's a, it's still affordable in the, for a metropolitan city um and there's still people that are uh willing and eager to uh promote the city by putting up their own time and money um to help um creative endeavors so um you know like i said i I've, i used to do touring shows too i was uh had a puppeteer on a show called walking with dinosaurs which is this uh, live-action, uh, life-size animatronic dinosaur puppet show? Um, sure. And so I've been, I've been to every city in North America, uh, every major city in North America, um, and I, I, I have an appreciation that a city is no more than brick and mortar. It's about the people and the community that you have uh, within it that make it. Uh, worth living in, you know? Sure. Yeah, I, um, you know, obviously my dream would be to be able to subsist strictly on my my writing alone. And I'm not quite at that point yet. Well, I'm not, <laughs> not, I'm not close to that point yet. But, you know, if, if I did that, you know, I've been thinking about relocating from Chicago. And then I, I was thinking where I wanted to go. You know, for the longest time I wanted to retire in the Virgin Islands in St. Croix, mm. but mm-hmm. with weather getting worse and worse and worse, and it, you know you, you're seeing these islands devastated and not having the funding available to clean up after you know these devastating storms, and they're just going to get worse. Um, 
it's you know I've been thinking about well where would you go and I think about Atlanta and I go okay so can you afford air conditioning and because <laughs> y'all are hot down there but there's a well, lot of conventions yeah. down there you go ahead yeah no uh, they uh, every building you have in here has air conditioning so you don't have to worry about that. I know, and plus downtown, you don't have to go outside at all. You just go up to the second or third floor, and you can walk from building to building to building. Um, and, and, yeah, I know. I know that. But you know what? You, you, you can't avoid it. And uh, yeah, yeah, the course, traffic, I wonder if my Chicago driving style is going to get me killed in Atlanta on the expressway. <laughs> You know, expecting people to do what they're supposed to do, and then they don't do it. And meanwhile, my car is skidding down the road upside down on the roof. So, you know, but but it does seem like a really cool place for creatives. You know, first of all, you have you have what about three or four conventions every weekend of the year. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's yeah. a, it's a it's a huge place in terms of creatives. Um, so if I get to the point where, you know, right now uh, Darkseid is being chopped out to become a TV show and, right. and some really cool people are, you know, behind that. So I think, you know, an option may be, well, I was assured that it could happen any time. Um, if, if things get to the point where, you know, let's say they do a couple of years of uh, TV episodes and I, I managed to negotiate, which isn't too hard, a writing credit you know, for every episode since it was my original content, I, I found out that you get paid pretty well per episode. You, know, you, can get, uh, yeah. you can get some decent money, and if you're not stupid you know, and buying everybody a house or investing in really dumb stuff you know, or whatever, um, it, it may be possible because, like you said, Downtown Atlanta, yes, it's very expensive to try to live there, you know, in that in that inner core. But with the transportation system you have, the trains are not bad at all. Getting downtown is not that hard. Um, you know, it's got all of the flavor of a big a bigger city. It doesn't lack for things. You know how? Okay, I went to Salt Lake City and I did some work for OSHA. Well, at eight o'clock, if you need anything, you, you have to <laughs> brought it with you. Okay, you know, there are cities like that. I don't want to live a place like that either. And the other thing, somebody said, you know, I've been thinking about, uh, I think I want to relocate maybe, you know, Florida or the Keats. And I go, well, how well do you swim? And he he looked at me, (laughs) he didn't understand what I was saying. I said, well, where where you're planning on living is probably going to be underwater in 10 years, you know. And, And the cool thing about being around Chicago is we do have the Great Lakes, so there is potable water available all the time, and that's a consideration too. Um, but I'm getting older. I don't want to go through another Chicago winter if I don't have to. Um, sure. I, I consider that a lot worse than, than down where you are. Um, yeah. With, you know, do you consider your situation, you've got all these creatives, you have you know, the industry there, although I'm not sure... Did the governor sign that bill that uh, all the Hollywood folks were pissed off about? What was it, the fetal heartbeat bill? Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, it, it's, it's a bill that's been going on, uh, around the country. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I showed up and actually there's a contingent of us that showed up to the uh, governor's mansion 
or the, the Capitol building um, that works in the film industry. And we're, we're, we're doing our best with it. He did sign it. Um, well, he's about to sign it. He w- wanted to wait until the golf masters were uh, done so that he didn't have to uh, make anything, do any controversial things in front of his um, money making cronies. Um, right. So right. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very, it, he's going to sign it. Um, it will be challenged in courts. It will. Yeah. It's uh, unconstitutional. Yeah, it's not going to become law. I mean, you know, the, the whole thing is they're just trying to kick it up to the Supreme Court and hope that they get enough conservative judges on this court uh, to take it up. So, uh, But it's not going to become law. Um, he is going to sign it, and um, we're doing our best to uh, fight. And, you know, the, the thing that it's doing is it's galvanizing people. It's waking people up. It's uh, putting people in the conversation that wouldn't necessarily be there, you know, much right. like uh, – right. 45, you know, when 45 got elected, you know, there were a group of people my age, if not younger, who started running for local government, you know. Um, and so the people that never even thought about uh, politics before started running. Uh, so it's doing that thing. It's galvanizing people. So that's, you know, it's not a good thing, but there can be good that is can come from it, you know. Yeah. I mean, we've never seen a more diverse Congress ever in the history mm-hmm. of, uh, of the country, and we had more women elected to office than we've ever seen before as well, and I like that. I think, I'll be honest with you, um, and, and I, I have no trouble telling women this, I think that the country is screwed up because of them, and then they get mad at me until, until <laughs> I go, wait, 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 before you cut those off, because I may need them later, um, let me explain what I'm saying, and, and basically women make up 52% of the voting public. Okay, and if they voted as a block, and we had 52 mm-hmm. U- U.S. senators who were women, 52% of the House that were mm-hmm. women, 52% of the sitting judges, 52% of the governors, and things like that, this would be a hell of a country because yeah. because you take it out of the hands of people who have who are demonstrably against the will of the people. You know, they're very greedy and things like that. And so when they hear that, they go, okay, all right, we're going to give you a pass. We're not going to cut those off. But you watch your mouth. You know, explain that first before you make, you know, those blanket statements. But it is true. And, and you know, look at what they're trying to do. You know, everybody, even even uh, moderate or mainstream, not moderate, mainstream Democrats are, you know, upset with the 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 vocal freshman class of Congress mm-hmm. critters. Um, and, and so I, I think that, like you said, the best takeaway that we have for what's going on in this country is in how it's mobilizing people to participate who wouldn't have thought about it otherwise, you know? Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. uh, now, in your stories, does politics play much of a, uh, a role in your stories? I'm just curious. Uh, you know, it's, no, it's funny because uh, I guess it's never really y- yes and no. I am very, uh, I'm a very political uh, uh, aware, and um, I won't want to say that I'm an activist, but I'm politically active. Um, sure. And I've been that way my, for most of my life. Um, and so my, but as I said, my, most of my work is uh, metaphor. And so I okay. rarely um, come out and say a thing. Um, I like to think that 
my work is a little more thought-provoking and, and um, conceptual. And um, I always have something to say within my pieces. I'm always saying something. Um, sometimes they're more speaking more towards the, the nature of human, humanity um, than okay. like a specific social issue. Um, this film, I think that the film that I'm currently uh, we're working on right now is the most arguably politically motivated uh, film, if you want to call it that. Um, partially just because we, uh, I'm trying to make it as authentic as possible. Like I'm, I'm all about authenticity and making something sure. feel real and gritty, and then you drop this weird sci-fi element to it. You know what I mean? <laughs> okay. I wanted, sure. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I wanted to feel like this. This very like I, I've always said it's like the kids from The Wire. Like, what if they discovered an alien spaceship? Um, and at the end of the day, the the conversation it feels like this fun joyride. But at the end of the film, they basically have this moment where they uh, realize, like, well, what if we don't go back? You know, what if we we have these new powers, we have these new abilities, we have this ship. What has society ever done for us? Let's just go, you know. And they have this conversation between the three of them, um, and. And they end up getting into this big argument, this big debate, and ultimately one of the kids makes a choice for them, and they get into a fight, and the ship ends up crash landing, um, and they get surrounded by the government. And the whole crux of the film is what happens when society is forced to pay attention to these kids. So the the scene ends with, the movie ends with um, basically them being locked up and interrogated, and then all of a sudden the powers that be realize that, oh, wait, we actually need these kids to unlock the most important discovery in human existence. And they have all, these kids have all the power in this situation. So how, now, how do we treat them um, based on the fact that they have the upper hand? Um, So like I said, this is the most political, if you will, uh, piece and to a certain extent, you know, uh, it's I probably was galvanized uh, subconsciously or maybe consciously uh, by current politics. You know, um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. even even though I have been, you know, to, to the point where I am being more um, specific and more um, on the nose. Uh, about okay topics I get you and, and things of that yeah so yeah 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 and for me um, I, I resonate with something that you said which is to write it accurately to tell to to depict the the circumstances as accurately as possible in terms of culture in terms of science in terms of uh, politics you know economy things like that because I, it, it's a, it's a good trick to your writing, and and you, you know because what it does is it it keeps people from having to suspend disbelief in order to stick with the story. Do you know what I mean? You know, if mm-hmm. all of a sudden you know everybody uh, everybody everybody's a millionaire in your story, you know nobody believes that mm-hmm. because how could that ever happen? Something like that, um, and and sometimes out of that. Um, your the way you describe how you write, you know, is kind of Michael Crichton esque, where you take today's culture and then you apply one 
change one one circumstance mm-hmm. and then you play out how that circumstance would affect everything. Which to me, I mean, the the ultimate for me would be yes, if they if they clone a Tyrannosaurus Rex and it gets away in San Diego and starts stomping up the street and knocking over, but I I am going to be I'm going to be watching CNN laughing my ass off because it's what they deserve. <laughs> but, but but you know that's that's what I like to do. I like to take one circumstance and and for my 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 first trilogy the circumstance was blacks managed to make it to the moon before neil armstrong got there and they built a colony um and and okay so what does that do to american culture when they got discovered you know how are people going to behave how's the military going to behave you know will there be sour grapes will there be a cry for you know give us what they have you know from from the populace to the government and so it, it i think i think it makes for more interesting writing as far as the reader is concerned because they they're already comfortably ensconced in today's culture so they don't have to imagine that um, I was at I was at Dragon Con, or not Dragon Con but World Con and, and I was moderating a panel on Afrofuturism and I've told this story before but it's quick but it makes I think it makes a good point. Um, uh, there was an older white gentleman who asked a question at the Afrofuturism panel and he said you know you know as a white person who has never lived you know around very many black people do I have to know much about black culture in order to enjoy you know uh, black science fiction fantasy and horror stories and being the you know the 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 borderline sarcastic jerk that I am um, I almost said something caustic or not caustic but it's sarcastic but then I thought about it because that was a brilliant question because that's a that's a question that's got to be on a lot of people's minds and I said you know what can I ask can I ask the room something and and they and everybody said sure I said okay how many people here saw Avatar and it's you know everybody raised their hand because it's a science fiction convention of course and I said okay um, put your hands down how many people here knew about big-ass blue people before you went to the movie and they all laughed because they got it if you're a good storyteller it's not essential that you know the underlying nuts and bolts of everything because through the telling of the story you're going to understand what the situation is who the protagonist is who the antagonist is you know what are the the forces arrayed against our hero you know that sort of thing so that you know the what the way you write makes perfect sense to me and it's it it sounds very very accessible to to either yeah. the reader or the viewer so i think that you know, you've got a really cool career, you know, and and just between you and me, it sounds like you've, you're handling it brilliantly. Um, you know, you've got a roof over your head. You're managing to do these many different projects. It sounds like you have the respect of your peers. That's awfully important, especially in a niche you know, in, in kind of a niche um, uh, industry like you. You know, we're not talking about, you know, folks fighting to get into, you know, Southern Cal puppet school. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's, not, it's, it's not something where you've got a lot of people co- coming to it, but you've done well. And um, this is, I, I think this is pretty cool to, and, and I hope people kind of keep an eye out for the kinds of creative things that you produce for yourself and maybe, you know, take a look at the things that you, you've participated in. 
because I, you know, it's 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 going to be, and it sounds like it has been interesting. Um, are yeah. you, do you have you enjoyed your career until now, or has it been more uh, strife than enjoyment? Uh, um, until this uh, conversation, no. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Has it been I, that I, bad? Yeah. Has this conversation been bad? Because I'll change. <laughs> the career was going great until now. Um, I, all right, I okay, I, all right, fine. I, I cannot. I certainly cannot complain. I, I have, I've been so lucky, lucky, and I, I have enjoyed myself, and I've had great moments of, of pleasure, and. Um, you know, at the same time, I, I think that being an artist and the self-deprecating artist as, as I have been, um, I, I always strive for more and I think always want to do more. Um, uh, but at, the thing that I've learned in my career is that this thing that we do is not the thing that is going to make us happy. You know, the thing that we do is a thing that can make us happy and can bring us joy, but it's you, you still have to find what is going to bring you ultimate happiness in in your in your own life, you know, like anybody else does, you know. Um, because the reality is that I've had, I've been at the top of my career, the top of my, and the very enviable jobs that, like, other people would have, fought for, um, that did fought for and had been miserable because of some extenuating circumstances, because of any other kind of BS that we all deal with in our relationships and what have you. So the, the, the job, the career, the life is not in and of itself the thing that makes us happy. It's our relationships, our, it's our worldview, it's our outlook, it's, it's how we uh, deal with the problems that come up against us. And uh, I think that that's something that everybody needs to, uh, especially young artists, because young artists, you know, we, we always, you always try and like think that once you get to there, then you're going to be happy, then you're going to be set. There's no making it in this industry. There is no I'm set in this industry. Uh, and I say the creative industry. There's always going to be new milestones. There's always going to be new places to uh, uh, strive for and everything. So you just have to find contentment and happiness in who you are and your your relationships and everything else around you, as opposed to like thinking that once you get that job, then you'll be happy because that's just that's not the way it works. Yeah, yeah. I um, you know, like I said, I would love to be at the point where my writing you know supports me. Um, instead of deporting laptops and figuring out why people's Wi-Fi routers, you know, um, do what they do or whatever I do, you know, I've been in the IT field since ooh, 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 1970, um, which is a long time. Um, mm. And and you're saying to yourself, my God, he doesn't sound nearly that old, and uh, I'm thankful <laughs> that I don't sound that old. Well, you know, I, I got I I've got my I've got I've got my my little advantages doing this show. But the thing is, is that, um, you know, like you said, you, you said, you hit the nail on the head. You know, it's not like we're going to all of a sudden arrive someplace and say, oh, I made it, and then stop. I think most really good creatives are consider themselves, um, what's the phrase? Oh, works in progress. You know, every book I write, every story I write, I want it to be qualitatively better than the previous one. 
you know, I'm not competing against anybody else. I'm not competing against like a dead guy like Isaac Asimov. I'm not competing against, um, you know, someone who does uh, uh, sci-fi in a completely different genre, you know, or anything like that. I'm competing with myself to write better and better stories that that resonate resonate more and more with people. Um, so, you know, being a creative is, it, it's kind of a big damn deal because, first of all, it's, it's not as, uh, you know, you don't get the perks, you know, that you don't get vacation days, you don't get, um, you don't, you don't get, uh, normally you don't get uh, employer provided uh, health insurance. Well, unless, you know, actually you get your own because, but you know what I mean? So, yeah, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. being an entrepreneur, you are, you are everything. You're, what is it, chief cook and bottle washer in order yeah. to make your, your life successful. And, and having, having the gumption to do it is one thing, but having the enthusiasm to keep doing it, I think is something that, it's, it's not that it's so rare, but it's something that you like to see. Um, yeah, uh, Jarvis just thank just thanked the two of us for a great show. Um, normally he closes out the show, but he's I think he's trying to sell his house. Um, I <laughs> hope they manage to plant those bodies deep enough in the backyard that a random dog doesn't <laughs> dig any of them up. But um, uh, but yeah, but it, you know, it, like I said, you know, you sound like you, you're doing well. And, um, you know, I'd like to get with you a few years down the road, see how things have changed. Also, you know, to see if some of these bigger projects that you really are invested in kind of manifest themselves and, and, and take off, because that, of course, would be great. That project you and I talked about, that's interesting to me, too. Um, we can talk about that offline. Um, but, yeah, I and, and, you know, just so that you know, the best part about doing this show is meeting people who I would never meet otherwise. Um, I've been doing this for six years. I don't know how many hundreds of people that I've interviewed. And the best part for me is when I go to a, a convention, like I went to Dragon Con, and boom, there, there are half a dozen people there who I've interviewed I've never met. And now I get to put a face, a, you know, a, a living face yeah, instead of absolutely. just a picture yeah. to, to who it was and, and get to talk to them, you know, and especially if they had something is, interesting to talk about. Because people think, you know, like I, I, we laughed about at the beginning, you know, when Jarvis tells people, tell, uh, tries to get people on the show and they go, well, how long is it? And he goes, two hours. And, they, and, and, you know, I can just imagine the look on their face. I know what they look like. It's like, Negro, please, I ain't got two hours worth of, you know, interview. <laughs> but the cool part is, is anybody who listens to this show that you and I just did is going to know more about you as a person and what drives you as a creative than any 12-minute interview you're going to get on the radio or any six-minute interview you're going to get on television. And I think that that's that's the great utility of the Genesis Science Fiction Radio Show. Um, We are just about out of time. And um, I do want to ask you, you know, did it seem like an onerous two hours, the interview? (laughs) <laughs> no, it was, you know, I've done a lot of uh, interviews over my career, so this has uh, been on the longer side, but, you know, it, like you said, you got a lot of, we got a lot of um, conversation in it, so I think we touched on some good, good topics, so I, I feel good about it. I'm, I'm, I am, seriously, I'm very thankful that you, you decided to do this and you stuck with it, um, and thank you very much for being here. Um, for those who tuned in even late, late... <laughs> You know, some people too did. I, I see them, you know, show up, 
and you know it's like <laughs> ten minutes before the the end of the show. Um, you've been listening to Raymond Carr. Uh, check check him out at uh, well yeah give give them all of your your online presence places again. Uh, yeah, uh, my website is uh, the movie we're working with is uh, joywritersmovie.com, uh, and you can also check it out on uh, Seed and Spark, which is our um, social media campaign to get it funded. Um, and you can find me on Instagram at the ninja puppet and um, on uh, Facebook uh, Ninja Puppet Productions and Google Joywriters Ninja Puppet. You'll find me. <laughs> Very cool, very cool. Well, on behalf of Jarvis Sheffield, the person who is the creative mind behind um, BlackScienceFictionSociety.com, which is over 10 years old, not a whole lot of websites with that kind of content have lasted that long. And this radio show is over six years old. Um, Not a lot of folks are going to give up their Friday nights for six years in a row unless, you know, they have the circumstance that I do and they have an ankle bracelet and they can't really go that far. So, anywho, (laughs) um, Raymond, I want to thank you for being here, man. I really enjoyed it. I had a great time. I hope you did, too. And and I look forward, seriously, down the road to either running into you um, face-to-face and and or um, having you on the show again, okay? Yeah, man. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Just hang on for a second after I stop the recording, and, and, and I, we use that as bait just to get people to, to log in and listen for the, the you know, like our two-minute <laughs> after show. So on behalf of right, Jarvis, right. myself, Raymond, and everybody else, I want to thank the people who listen to this live. I also want to thank the people who picked this up as a podcast. You're just as important as, as those, of, uh, uh, those who give up their Friday nights to check out the show. Be sure to visit BlackScienceFictionSociety.com. It's an all-new look with an all-new underpinnings. Um, it's, it's a faster site. It doesn't require any money to join. And uh, check out some of the things that we have to offer and the information about some of the projects in, in progress, like the Earth Squadron movie that is going to be a product of BlackScienceFictionSociety.com. So on behalf of everybody who makes the show happen and the special guests that we always have, I want to wish everybody a great evening and a wonderful Easter weekend. Good night, everybody. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.